Drive Time on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Zurich. When investment performance matters, make sure your savings are with Zurich. Visit zurich.ie to find out more. Thank you very much for that. Now, as we've been hearing, Tosh the Michal Martin said today that he agreed that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was killed by the Russian state and the Russian ambassador was called in yesterday to the Department of Foreign Affairs on the issue. Human rights groups are outraged at the death of Navalny and a little earlier on, I was joined from Australia by Professor Ben Saul, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. And I first asked him about what he thinks happened to Alexei Navalny. There's no official position because uh, no full investigation has uh, occurred yet. And that's precisely why in these kinds of cases, when somebody dies in the custody uh, of a state, that there must be a full, uh, credible, independent, impartial, effective investigation uh, so that we do get to the bottom of uh, of what happened. I mean, clearly, it is incredibly suspicious circumstances, given we, what we know about the repression of Navalny by, by the Russian state and his you know, previous poisoning and targeting, uh, Russia absolutely needs to do the right thing and to, to have a, a, an independent, credible investigation so that we uh, we know what happened. Yulia Navalny, uh, Alexei Navalny's wife, has, has claimed that her husband was poisoned by another of Putin's Novichoks and she said that she'll soon reveal details on why he was killed. Um, but as, as you know, his body hasn't even been released back to his family yet. How can Russia be compelled to allow an independent investigation or can it? The international community uh, has to do what it can to put that pressure on Russia to do the right thing. Uh, There are levers at at the disposal of of countries. Uh, I mean, lots of countries now have, for example, Magnitsky sanctions, which uh, allow human rights violating states to be be targeted. Um, You know, that's that's a, a difficult process. I mean, Russia's already under sanctions for its invasion uh, of uh, of Ukraine. It's been sanctioned by a lot of countries for corruption and uh, attempted killings of, of uh, other activists, journalists, etc. Uh, so there's there's no immediate solution. The Security Council would be paralyzed and can't do anything because Russia has a veto there. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, R- Russia um, uh, is doing its best to uh, evade scrutiny and, uh, and accountability. But I, I think there is a, a kind of rage globally at what Russia has done because it has done it before. I mean, it's murdered people uh, on the territory of the the United Kingdom. It's murdered people at at home. Uh, I mean, this is a pattern uh, by by President Putin, uh, and it's one which uh, the international community has to bring more pressure on Russia to to bring to an end. And yet the Russian ambassador to Ireland was called in for a meeting with the Department of Foreign Affairs um, and Russian ambassador Filatov categorically rejected all of those claims by by the Irish state that there was Russian involvement in, in in the death of Alexei Navalny, rejected that as outright intolerable interference in the internal affairs of Russia. What do you think of that? That, of course, is complete nonsense and has been ever since 1945, when after the Second World War, a new system of international human rights accountability was established. And under that system, it is not interference in internal affairs or interference 
in a state's sovereignty uh, to mount legitimate criticisms on human rights grounds of how a state has behaved. And uh, that that's nowhere more pointed than in the case of an alleged extrajudicial killing by the state of somebody in their in their custody. Uh, so obviously that you know those are those are, are very defensive comments. I mean I think if Russia is serious about proving it wasn't involved in the killing in any way, then it has to accept that there must be an independent, credible, impartial investigation uh, so that they can demonstrate to the world that there was nothing untoward about this killing. The fact that they're not willing to do that, uh, I think, uh, speaks volumes about what is going on here uh, in reality. Alexei Navalny's mother, it's it's been reported uh, today, has filed a lawsuit at a court in the Arctic city of Salakard uh, trying to contest the refusal to release her son's body. Do you think that's likely to yield any results? I would hope that a court would do its job as a judicial body and deliver uh, an independent uh, decision. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think we do know that the, the Russian state has captured the judiciary in large part, uh, including because of reprisals and intimidation against judges themselves. Uh, I mean, people want to survive. People uh, often self-censor and, and they're not going to you know, necessarily issue a, a judgment against the Russian state uh, in a case where the Russian state is accused of killing people and might do the same to, to, to judges. So, uh, I think that the credibility of the Russian uh, judicial system is, of course, uh, a, a real questioning in a case like this. Do you have concern for concerns for other opposition figures in Russia? Well, I think if if Russia, I mean, if it is true that the Russian state murdered Navalny, uh, this is this is the most high-profile political dissident in Russia, uh, with a global reputation, with support from many states uh, around the world for his legitimate expression of uh, internationally protected human rights, of political participation, freedom of expression, assembly, association, etc. I mean, if, if, if the Russian state is willing to murder somebody like that, then people uh, who, who don't have as much visibility and protection uh, are, are, are even more at risk in some ways because uh, those barriers to, to, to killing them uh, are not as high as they were in the case of Navalny. One of those is uh, Vladimir Kara Murza, who's one of the opposition activists who's currently serving a 25-year sentence in Russia, and he's released a statement um, on Alexei Navalny's death, firmly blaming Vladimir Putin, saying, I know one thing for sure, responsibility for the death of Alexei Navalny is carried personally by Vladimir Putin. Um, f- for him, and for others uh, like Ilak Yashin and Alexei Goronov, you, know, you would have to have serious concerns about their, their lives. I know their health is already in serious danger. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in some ways, um, because Navalny was so high profile, he was more dangerous to the, to, to the Russian mm-hmm. state. So uh, in, in some ways, the fact that he was targeted, you know, is more explicable from the, the standpoint of, a, of an authoritarian uh, state, which doesn't tolerate political dissent. Um, you'd hope that would play in the favour of other dissidents who uh, who aren't uh, of such a high profile, uh, you know, maybe the Russian state would would be happy enough that uh, they're they're in jail. Uh, they're they're sufficient, you know, whatever risk that the Russian state thinks they they pose is sufficiently contained by detaining them. Uh, but of course, you know, with Navalny gone, there's then there's then a void in terms of the the top of the leadership of uh, of, of Russian political dissidents. Um, so you know, others will undoubtedly rise. 
guys to, to fill that void. And then, you know, Russia has a number one target all over again. And as you said, there's been sanctions on Russia in relation to its actions in Ukraine, and they don't appear to have made any notable difference in terms of uh, preventing that action in Ukraine. Is there anything really genuinely that can be done, do you think? Well, certainly Russia has absolutely demonstrated that it is uh, an utterly law-breaking state, which has shown contempt for the basic principles of the post-war uh, order since 1945, uh, aggressively invading uh, another state, trying to swallow its territory, committing uh, very substantial large-scale war crimes, uh, murdering people, you know, dissidents in their own country, murdering people, you know, on, on British soil. Uh, and as you say, those those stories have have passed. I mean, I think I do think Russia is paying a price for this. Uh, I mean, sanctions have bitten uh, on the Russian economy. I mean, yes, they haven't stopped the war, they haven't stopped the killing, uh, but, it, you know, it, it potentially has contained Russia from doing even worse. Um, I, I want to move on to the Middle East then, and I know you've been expressing concern about Israel's policy of potential extrajudicial killings, such as the alleged undercover killings in an occupied West Bank hospital that was the killing of three Palestinian men at Ibn Sina Hospital in Jenin just last month. Um, is there ever any justification for Israel or indeed any state to carry out extrajudicial killings? Uh, well, uh, extrajudicial killings, no. The question is, what is an extrajudicial mm. killing? And of course, uh, in a situation of armed conflict, the interna international humanitarian law uh, has rules which allows the targeting and killing of, of uh, enemy combatants and fighters and so on. And, and uh, there are questions about who is a fighter or a combatant uh, in certain situations, particularly guerrilla warfare, etc. Uh, but this is this is not one of those cases. Uh, I mean, this was uh, a, wound, a severely wounded man. Uh, out of combat, you know, even if he had had some association with the Palestinian armed group, as uh, as Israel uh, uh, alleged, uh, he wasn't in combat when he was killed. He was lying uh, severely disabled in a hospital bed, and he was shot in the head. Um, uh, the way that Israel mounted the killings uh, also amounts to a, a war crime, uh, what we call the war crime of perfidy, which is feigning civilian status, you know, by dressing as as medical staff or civilians. Uh, and engaging in combat while dressed as defenseless, harmless civilians, right? Um, that's a problem uh, under international law because uh, it, it's uh, abusing the protected status of medical staff or protected civilians. And it invites uh, the other side to think that every civilian uh, might be packing a weapon and, and could be a, a dangerous fighter. Uh, so then the other side starts uh, suspecting every civilian is a, is a fighter. And, and that distinction between fighters, combatants and civilians, on the other hand, totally breaks down and you go down a, a path of of total war. So this is this is not a, a series of killings which is defensible in any way under international humanitarian law. So then is it clear to you on, on both of those instances, the fact that the uh, Israeli forces had disguised themselves and also the fact that they, they killed the man who was lying in bed, uh, wounded, as you say, not armed, not fighting at the time. Is it clear to you that both of those actions were war crimes? Uh, that, that's right. And, and uh, a further reason 
is because this was uh, this is what well, this is uh, Israeli occupied territory. There were no active hostilities or combat in that area, so it's not like a, a situation of hot combat hot, hot combat between uh, two fighting forces. Um, this was an area firmly under uh, Israeli uh, military control. It had the option to arrest those people uh, safely, securely. It, it chose not to do that and instead uh, murdered them uh, in, a, in a hospital room. Um, the next time we're speaking to someone from Israel or Israeli spokesperson on, on the show, Ben, I may well put your points that you've just made to them um, and they will ask what organisation you're from and when I tell them that you're related to the United Nations, um, they will point immediately to UNRWA and uh, the investigation into uh, the alleged uh, association of, of 12 UNRWA employees with Hamas or their involvement in the October 7th attacks. Um, and they will say that UNRWA is, is not an independent organisation from that perspective. What do you have to say to all that? Uh, well, firstly, uh, let me say that as a, as a United Nations special rapporteur, I've been appointed as an independent expert. I'm not part of any UN agency. Uh, I'm not an employee of the United Nations and I speak for, my, for myself. So my view is a, is a completely independent, impartial expert view on how international humanitarian law applies. On UNRWA, uh, look, uh, I mean, it's clear uh, from what we know from the, the public reporting um, that there are real doubts about the veracity of the information uh, Israel uh, is, has relied upon in making some of those accusations. Um, if, there is, if there are credible uh, allegations and, and evidence against UNRWA, uh, employees, then they should be tested in, a, in an appropriate process, according due process, by the way, uh, to the UNRWA employees who have been affected, who also have human rights, and they shouldn't just be, you know, sacked from their, their job based on an unsubstantiated allegation with no fair hearing, uh, no presentation of evidence, no ability to, to challenge that evidence, uh, uh, etc. Uh, of course, if UNRWA staff are involved in uh, the killing of civilians or, or other uh, acts which are unlawful under international humanitarian law, or international human rights law, then of course they should they should face the consequences for that, including uh, criminal prosecution for international crimes, etc. 